being the Wednesday before Easter, Pastor had asked me to preach. I, I did this, I think, a year ago or so, and um, the general idea on this Wednesday is that we'll focus on the death of Christ, obviously one of the pivotal, pivotal moments in human history and very important to those who are here tonight. Let's say a quick word of prayer before we get started. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the ability to gather the freedom we have to celebrate uh, your son. Uh, thank you for what we'll learn tonight and ask that your spirit would speak and he would be heard. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So typically, in the service where we're going to talk about the death of Christ, there are certain things we're going to focus on. We're going to talk about the week up to his death and the actions that he took. We'll talk about his time in the garden and how he was sweating drops of blood, how he was so intense, how his emotion was so real that he was feeling the pressure of what he was about to do, both physically and spiritually. We'll talk about his sacrifice, the fact that he paid a debt that you can't, so you wouldn't have to, and that was paid. And so tonight, I want to talk about some of those things. I do want to read some of the scriptures to then set up some application for our lives. So turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 22. Starting in verse 39. So verse 39 through 42. Coming out, he, being Jesus, went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to that place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from then about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What an honest moment. Yes, he's the Son of God. Yes, he was perfect. But the emotions and the stress that he was feeling at that point led him to this point of realizing, I'm about to be separated from the Father. For the first time in all of eternity, he would, not be connect, he would not have that connection. The Father would turn his head. And that, that sadness that he would face, even though he did it for a purpose and with the joy, at that point was weighing so heavily upon him that he actually prayed, God, if there's a way out of this, I'll take it, but not your will, or not my will, but yours be done. Go forward to verse 63. He's now been through the part where he was praying fervently, intense emotion and desire, sweating the drops of blood because things were so devastating to him. Now to the point where he's been arrested. And the sinless and perfect man who did nothing but love others and heal and bring goodness and teach us was now being tortured. Verse 63, Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. And then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? And so he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. So the conviction's been made. 
This innocent man is now headed to the cross. Go forward to verse chapter chapter 23. There's so much here to discuss in the death of Christ, but we're going to skip through these major sections to then make points to our lives. Chapter 23, verse 39. He's now on the cross. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Probably one of my all-time favorite scriptures. This man did nothing but admit that he needed God. At a last desperate moment, anyone who can doubt deathbed conversions hasn't read this passage. When you come to the end of yourself and realize, I've got nothing left, just remember me. He didn't ask to come with him. He just said, remember me. Think about me when you're there. And Jesus said, no, you're going to be there with me. And in that moment, he was saved. Verse 44. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. The sacrifice had been made. My sins that put him up there and yours, wiped clean, taken care of. My past sins, my present sins, my future sins, all paid for. In that one moment. You think about that concept for a minute of what he did. And last year, I think it was last year or the year before, I taught the excellent Wednesday service. And we made the point of God didn't have to make this so brutal. He could have done any way he wanted to. But he chose this. And I believe to make a point that this is how ugly your sin is. This is what's necessary. This is the sacrifice that's necessary to pay for. He made a point with his son. But lest you think... That this was a case where, okay, well, these bad men got Jesus and they crucified him. This was the Romans did this. All oh, the Jews did this. Jesus did this. At that moment when he died, that looked so sad to everyone around him, he had finally reached his goal. He spoke on several occasions about how he was looking forward to this. When he sat down to break bread with them at the Passover, he said, I have fervently looked forward with desire to this moment that I would eat this with you. He was actually... Even though physically, emotionally he was drained, this was something he had looked forward to as, this is why I'm here. This is what I'm about to accomplish. I'm about to pay for everything you've done. He met his goal. So, what does that mean now to us for sin? We've been talking about sin with the youth on Wednesday nights. And a big focus a lot of times of us as Christians is looking at certain little things we'll do and deciding, okay, is this a sin? Is that not a sin? Maybe the kids will ask, okay, well, if I do this, is this sin? I used to worry about, okay, well, what if I happen to do this sin and then I run a red light and I get, I get hit and I didn't have time to ask for forgiveness? I would get so focused on, well, what's sin and what's not sin? Do you know what actually, for salvation purposes, doesn't matter what sin is? And we got in this big discussion of a certain 
big sin. You know, there's, we all, there's a church, we tra- keep track of these big sins that nobody ought to do. And we're real great at protesting against these big sins. And we got in this discussion back in youth on whether or not it was sin. And the point that I made, because of what Jesus did on the cross, it doesn't matter. These things that you do, because they're paid for, that's what freedom in Christ is. That's the salvation he gave, that sacrifice that he made. He paid for those sins. And so pick something in your mind. Okay, well, this thing that is probably sin. For salvation, and we're going to get to why sin does matter, but for salvation purpose, it's paid for. God sees you as his spotless son. The blood paid for it. So we spend so much time focusing on if something is sin or not, that we miss the point. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it, Paul said, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each other's well-being. So the question isn't, oh, is this sin? The question is, is it good for me? Is it good for you? Is it a good example? Because we live by a different standard now. The penalty's been paid. We're going to get in. We're good to go. And if that's all you care about, your life won't be very fulfilling. But you can be saved. But our discipleship, which is what James has been talking about on Sundays, is that next step. Salvation is not the goal. It's hard for evangelical Christians to hear that, but salvation is not the goal. It's the starting point. I saw a great quote I was reading in an article. You first become saved. Then you become a disciple. Implicit in that word disciple, discipline, it's something we have to work at. Now, there's a danger in teaching, doesn't matter what you do, all the sins are paid for, because anyone who becomes the own judge of whether something is good for them or not will now begin to justify and say, well, you know, it's, you know, I think that's okay for me. I think it's good because my sins are paid for. I'll be good. So obviously that teaching can be, can be twisted. But, but Paul said in the book of Romans, should we sin more because grace has covered it? God forbid. The, the human extreme is either we're completely legalistic and everything is wrong or we go completely into freedom and I can do anything I want. Growth and maturity in Christ because of his sacrifice teaches us to discipline ourselves. Now, one thing I, I had thought of when I was thinking about this, and I'd mentioned this a few weeks back for something I was up here for, the Christian church is really good at being against stuff. Okay? We are signing petitions. We're online. We're protesting. We're against, let's see what the list I came up here. We're against abortion. We're against the homosexuality. We're against all music and TV shows and Hollywood and pornography and living together before marriage and et cetera and et cetera and et cetera. And you know what? That's good. We should hold standards. We should tell people that there's a better way. But should we be known more for what we're against than what we're for? Look about how we come across to folks. Oh, yeah, that's those people that are against such and such. And I'm glad you're holding up a standard. But don't forget our tone. Don't forget when we're preaching at these people that our goal is to win them. I know a young lady who is really great at fighting for Jesus. She'll stand up and fight against anybody that'll say things against Jesus. And she admitted the other day, sometimes I got to worry a little bit about how I come across because I, I fight for Jesus, I get mad, and I delete them off Facebook. Okay? Do you see the, the problem there? We just lost our ability. The goal is to win them. Don't be so against things. The beauty of the scriptures are the do's, the things that we should do that help make life better, to help make a disciple. So, I mentioned a phrase a few weeks ago when I did communion here. 
about a call to holiness. And I have a challenge for you tonight. To not accept looking like the world. We're in it. Not to be of it. A call to holiness in your own life to begin a discipline of looking at the scriptures and saying, what ought my life to look like? Jesus came with two goals. That first goal was met on the cross. He died for my sins. He paid for every single one of them. He rose from the dead. But the second goal, I believe, was a big part of Jesus' ministry was his example. Not only did he pay for the sins, but also while here, he showed us what God with skin on looked like and what we ought to be acting like. And how often do we actually use that filter to affect what we do? Do we use him? So let me ask you a question. In your specific life, don't think about somebody else. Think about you. Jesus paid for our sins, right? He died on the cross to pay for our sins. In you, did he get what he paid for? Now, don't misunderstand me. His sacrifice was perfect and sufficient to pay for my sins. But in your life, the life that he lived, let me say it again, did he get what he paid for? We'll come back to that. James has been talking about discipleship on Sundays. The starting point with you specifically was obviously when you got saved. Okay? When you became a born-again Christian, that transaction took place, you became saved. But notice in the Great Commission, this is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28. "Go Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Do you notice he didn't say make converts? He didn't say, get people to join the club. He said, make disciples. And then I underline this, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. So many crusades, which I'm not criticizing, I absolutely love them. Huge Billy Graham fan. A lot of these churches, we have something afterwards where we say, oh, we had had 12 hands raised, we had 17 hands raised. And that's a wonderful thing. Wonderful. But if that's where it stops, then that's where their growth stops. And now I'm going to point it at you. If all you ever did was get saved and you call yourself a Christian the same way you'd call yourself any other label, I'm a member of this party, I'm a member of that club. If all you ever is, well, yes, I joined the Christian church, then you're missing out. Because he expects more. It starts with you. Discipleship. First become saved, then become a disciple. To do that, you have to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. The Lordship, meaning he is actually something significant. There's a relationship there. He is Lord. I I read something interesting. We call Jesus our Savior, and rightfully so. The New Testament, the word for Lord, is used 667 times in reference to God or Jesus, the Father God or Jesus. 667 times. He's our Lord. How many times do you think he's referred to as Savior? 24. Is God trying to make a point? Yes, he's your savior. That's the start. Let him become your Lord. And to do that, you need to be in this. I was thinking about this this, this morning. I was praying about, you know, what to talk about and all that. 
And I thought about a mirror. If I'm holding up a mirror and I turn it towards you, what do you see? You see you. Okay, your life is a mirror. Are you reflecting, well, you will be reflecting whatever you're looking at. So if you're on Facebook, not to pick, 10 hours a day, you're going to reflect the culture on Facebook. If you're on TV, if you're on, you know, even good things. If all you ever see in your life are things of the world, and I'm not saying it's wrong to be on Facebook and television and all that kind of stuff, but if that's the focus of your day, if your daily spiritual activity is nil, but you find four hours a day to watch the stuff you DVR'd, been guilty of that myself, that's what we're going to reflect. If our goal, if we're facing our job, if my career is everything, then I'm going to look like that. But the more time I spend in here fellowshipping with you, and the more time I spend in here and in prayer, then I will begin to reflect Jesus. You can't recognize and acknowledge his lordship and learn and show that unless you're actually looking at him and spending time with him. And in prayer, like James said on Sunday, not making it a laundry list, but actually spending time to just let him speak to you. And believe me, that's hard. I mean, I don't sit and hear voices. There's times I just sit and be quiet. I don't know what I'm learning. But in that time, there's a peace and a growth that comes. In 2 Kings and in the book of Nehemiah, there are two different occasions where the book of the law was brought out and read. And the audience, in hearing what it said in the Bible, or actually the book of the law at that point was different than the Bible, but the book wept. They were hearing, wow, that's what I'm supposed to be? That's what I'm supposed to live in my life? If we were actually to dig in and truly see in our daily lives the things that we are doing and compared them to the scriptures, I think it could be devastating. He expects us actually to dig into it and see what it says to do about everything in our life. Now, we're really good at using this book. Okay, We get it. We arm ourselves with the scripture we like. And we wind up and smack that person that we know they're doing what's wrong against the scriptures. Wow, you shouldn't be doing this. Here's the scripture that points out what you're doing wrong. But what's it say about what you're doing? So often I have to tell our kids, you know, with the many kids we have, you, you get to hear mom, dad a lot. It's the telling. And a phrase I've gotten really good at is, you know, worry about you. Now, not, there are times, okay, well, if they, if they, like, hurt you really bad, you can tell. But beyond that, you worry about you. There's a scriptural application there. If we're going to grow in discipleship, if we're going to make what Jesus did worth it in our daily lives, worry about you. One of the things Jesus did in the Last Supper is he washed their feet. And he said... In the, in the Gentile world, in the normal world, there's these lords that they'll lord over you, and there's the people that have authority over you, and you will serve. But here I am, being the one serving you. Humility. Heidi's had a desire to something, do something with the youth that she used to do when, when, they were, uh, when she was a, a kid, that they would do a foot washing. And so we've discussed the possibility of doing that with the youth at some point. Because there's a humility in that. So how can we apply that? So there are, you know, 500 different scriptures I could have used coming up here to apply to us 
to say, you know, what things could we do differently? But there are three or four the Lord brought to mind. And with the attack that the family is under, there are a few that he brought to mind that I, that I will share with you tonight before we do communion. I'm starting first with the husbands. Hopefully you didn't wear a, a soft-toed shoe because I might have to step on your toes a little bit, but I'll be stepping on mine at the same time. Husbands, Ephesians. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. And who, he who loves his wife loves himself. One of the most challenging things Pastor James ever said to me is, Jonathan, you are the pastor of your home. Your children and your wife are your flock. So when I come home and I've had a stressful day, you know, my job right now, if, you, I don't, if, if, if any of you have spoken to you, know that my company is basically shutting down. We're all losing our jobs. It would be very easy to be stressed out right now. When I come home and I'm in a mood, do I disrespect her? Do I degrade her? Do I treat her poorly in front of the children or not in front of the children? What kind of example am I? Do I talk about my needs that I expect her to fulfill and ignore hers? Do I come home and say, you know what, you know, I've had a tough day, I need to kick back. I mean, I know you got the kids, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch... Uh, some football or get on the internet. And I'm wrong with that stuff. But am I putting her first? How did Christ love the church? He died. This might seem like a strange place to go. Let's talk about humility. Let's talk about where we're at right now. The church and the family are under attack. So husbands, you're responsible to love them, to teach them. If you have a problem with your family, you know what? They reflect you. If you are a poor leader in your home, that will affect them. Wives. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. So wives, do you submit to your husband as the pastor of your home? And right now, if the first thing in your head is you're immediately thinking of how he does not deserve that respect, stop. God didn't mention whether he deserved it or not. But that goes both ways. There are times that I'm certain in every marriage that the, opposite, the spouse is not very lovable. He didn't ask your, your opinion. He said, love your wife. Wives, he said, submit to your husband. Well, but my husband, stop. Not to be offensive, just stop. It doesn't matter whether or not you think they deserve it. If we're going to grow in Christ, not to be unloving, but if we're going to be what's in the book, if we're going to learn what's in here, you submit to each other. You love each other. You teach. You help grow. Not based upon what they are, but based upon what they will become. 
because you're responsible for them. And then both husbands and wives, just understand how you treat your spouse, that's how your kids are going to treat theirs. Do you want that for them? Apply the golden rule. Parents, Colossians 3. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Proverbs 22. Train up a child in the way he should go and in the end it will not depart. Here, I'm guilty of this one. I spent a lot of years yelling because I said so. And my wife had to come to me from, a, from something she had read in a, in a good book that she had found about parenting saying, if you bring the scriptures to them to say, this is what we're trying to teach you. And I'm not saying I'm perfect at it. I raise my voice, and sometimes Heidi's got to tell me, listen, could have done things differently there. And not that raising your voice is always wrong. There are times it's probably necessary. But for the most part, are we loving our children? Are we hugging our children? Are we actually involved in their lives? There's stuff they bring me, but honestly, I, I don't care. I don't want to do. I don't find it interesting. But I want to be invested in their lives. I want to see them become something. They're going to become... It doesn't really matter, honestly, that much what you're saying. They're going to become you. And unless you're reflecting Jesus, back to that reflection, then they're going to become whatever you're reflecting. In the world, Romans 12, it is poss- as much as it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. In your spiritual walk, in the church or in your job, do you look for reasons to be upset with people? I know a lot of people like that. There's always something to be angry about. There's always the latest Facebook thing. I'm going to grumble. I'm going to complain. This guy at work, he's this and this and that. And not that you can't vent to each other at times. But the bulk of your day should not be spending on this is what's wrong and this is what's wrong and this is how this person is just raking me over the coals. And this, you know, our thoughts. Our speech should be encouraging and edifying and building each other up. Are there going to be things we need to vent about? Absolutely. I'm watching my brother's wife right now who is most likely, I don't don't say most likely, the Lord can do anything. She's got cancer. It's not doing, she's not doing well. And it's hard for her to focus on anything positive. But occasionally she'll put something out on Facebook saying, but the Lord can still do anything. And she has her moments. She has her days. That's something real. Okay? That's hard. The things we deal with, if, we're, if our perspective is eternal, it's on Christ, shouldn't there be some joy? Shouldn't there be some recognition that he's done something for us and instead we're going to grumble and complain and grumble and complain and gossip, prayer request. What this person did at church. Romans 13, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities for there's no authority except from God. Y'all just got your taxes done. Anything in there where you're like, well, it's paid under the table on that, but I mean, the government gets too much taxes anyway. That'll bomb up. How about when you drive home? You're kind of in a hurry. You miss American Idol or something. I know speed limit's at 55, but my brother used to call. He's like, ah, oh, these are sunshine rules. It's, it's bright outside. It's, it's the dry pavements. So we can go 60. The, the cops, they don't pull you over for 60. Who cares? Did the Bible say, obey the laws of men within five miles per hour? <laughs> it's not about whether you're going to get busted for it. Think about the example to those around you. Think about the example to your children. It's about submission. Us showing an attitude of submission. 
I think I've told you the story before of when my grandmother, years ago when she could still drive and she pulled up behind a car that had uh, honk if you love Jesus on it. And I don't know if they were barring the car or whatever, so she honked and they flipped her off. Well, that's a bit extreme, but I mean, the whole point of it is, is that our submissive example, believe me, I am not a big favor of our government and a lot of what they do, but unless it goes against the word of God, we're bound. Ephesians 5, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Are you submissive to the will of others? Not that we should never take a stand. But there's a verse in the Bible that talks about suing somebody else, suing another Christian. And I don't know if it was Paul or Peter, I remember who said it, but basically said, wouldn't you rather be cheated than to take a brother to court? It's not about our rights. This society is big about rights. All of this has a central theme. There's a lot of you know, different ideas of what we just went through. And there's 50 more verses we could go through and just hammer our toes and hammer our toes and worry about all these things. Are you reflecting Jesus in your walk? That book, What Would Jesus Do in the Wristbands We All Used to Wear 10, 15 Years Ago? Do you examine your day and look through and say, okay, which things wouldn't Jesus have done that I did today? And then work on those things? Or are you in the same place now that you were 10 years ago, 15 years ago? Growth is a necessary component of the Christian walk. If you're not growing, then you're going backwards. And Jesus had in mind that we would be a reflection. There's a reason we're called his body. A body of believers. Sometimes we use that so much we lose thought of what that is. We are part of him. We're hidden in Christ. And unless our lives begin to reflect that, this challenge I'm issuing to, a challenge of holiness... Yeah, we're not going to be perfect. But stop accepting mediocrity. Stop accepting that it's okay to look like the world. Be in it, love them, yes. You have no right to do that to Jesus for what he did for us. We not have the right to just kind of be like, yeah, that, that, that Christian, that's the thing I do on Sunday and it makes me feel good and, and uh, you know, that church makes me feel good about myself. No. And love is great. Joy is great. We ought to have that. Someday is a celebration, the resurrection of Christ. But don't forget where it, where it started. He died because we have sin. He paid for it. Now it's up to you to try to earn your way towards that. We should hate sin. Heidi read me a quote this morning out of a book. And this fellow was saying we can work so hard we eventually get to the point where we can't sin. I don't know that I believe that. But our goal should be to hate sin that much. You see the effect it has on us. Two verses, and then we need to get to communion. Romans chapter 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable, perfect will of God. Do not conform to the world, it says. And it says, living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Not that, wow, this is a big deal. No, this is just the reasonable thing you ought to do. Be holy. Don't be a sacrifice that wants to keep crawling off of the idol. Or the, yeah, the idol. You need to be willing to sacrifice your will for God. And finally, Colossians chapter 12. And if the servers want to come up, we're going to start communion. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, Humility, meekness, long-suffering, 
bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. We have a gift here in this body. I've been in a lot of churches that are dysfunctional, that are splitting, that are falling apart. We have something wonderful here, but it doesn't stay this way unless you build it, unless you grow it. And that's what James is talking about. We should be in each other's lives a bit. Discipleship is not, I'm going to stay in my home and I saw a service on Sunday and if I see this and I'll show up on Wednesday once in a while. Discipleship is, we're going to get involved in this person's life and we're going to grow together as a body. And we're going to become something. We have force in this world, not because of our strength, but because of his. So I challenge you to holiness. And think about that as we take the Lord's Supper together. It says in Luke chapter 22, 